next Bible reading is from Psalm 130. You'll find them on the inside of the newsletter that you would have got at the door. You'll also find it in your Bible. It will also appear on the screen. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, our second Bible reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, continuing on from where we left off last week at verse 18, going through to the end of the chapter at verse 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word to us. Have you ever, um, have you ever interviewed someone for a job? It's an interesting kind of experience. One thing you learn very quickly is that resumes can be more aspiration than fact few knowing chuckles around the room, more this is what I would like you to think that I might do rather than this is actually reality. And so in the whole sort of literature around interviewing and all that sort of stuff, there has become a phrase that is, I think, very, very wise. The best indicator of future behaviour is past performance. You actually go looking for someone who's actually done the kind of stuff that you're looking for. You don't find someone who thinks that they might like to. You actually find someone who's actually done it on the ground. You ask for evidence of the behaviours you actually want to see. The other trap for those who are interviewing is, uh, and I've possibly fallen into this in the past, You've got to have a crystal clear picture of what it is 
that the role actually demands. What is needed for this role? What is the role actually needed? Uh, What's it look like? Because if you don't know what you're looking for, you're absolutely guaranteed never to find it. And so as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and onwards, we actually see that there is a job that needs to be filled. There is a task of absolutely monumental proportions. And we saw it last week when Jesus was introduced to us as Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this is how God described the task of one that we were waiting for, that through this descendant of Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through them. That's a big role. Yes? Anyone feel like putting their hands up and saying, I can do that? Because when you put that in the context, chapter 12, in the context of 1 to 11, you realise that the task of this person is to bring blessing on a creation under God's curse. Because in Genesis chapter 3, humanity had rebelled. They decided they could do it better, they could do it their way, and they would turned away from God. And they had come under his judgment, and they had been cut off from the source of life. And what we have in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is the beginning of God's rescue plan. And you remember last week, we looked at the genealogy. It was a bit of fun, wasn't it? Uh, All those names that are there. But you remember, in the genealogy, I think the important things are in the breaks. So we have Abraham, and then we had 14, and then we had, does anyone remember? David, okay? Promises made to each. Then we had 14, we had the exile. And then we had another 14, and we are waiting now for God's next move. And we have Jesus. That genealogy has shown us in no uncertain terms that no matter how good humanity could be, they need something else. Israel's best could not apply for this job. Remember King David, the man after God's own heart, The shepherd called to be a king. The one who took on Goliath and won. Adultery. Murder. And his son, Solomon. You know, the one that the promise of 2 Samuel 7 spoke of. The one who built the temple, whose wisdom was renowned throughout the nations. The queen of Sheba comes in and is amazed. You know what he does? He ends up worshipping other gods. No matter how good Israel's best were, they were never good enough. Guys like Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat. If you're having a kid, I want Jehoshaphat. I want one in the church, please. That'd be really nice. You see, they're, they're, they're blips on the radar. They're little glimmers of light, of hope that are there for just maybe a few decades. And then it goes back to the way it was. And you have men like Ahaz, Manasseh. Manasseh who sacrificed his own son in a fire 
to Molech. Israel, God's chosen nation, the ones to whom he had given his law, the one to whom he'd bound himself, Israel was incapable. And if they couldn't do it, what hope did the rest of us have? They came under judgment. They could not bring blessing to the nations. And so what Israel did is they did what we do. You know, when, you know, for those of us who are parents, you know this, and I'm, I'm probably possibly going to cause offence. So, you know, blame the teachers amongst us. It's their fault anyway. Um, when anything's wrong with your kid, it's never, it's never an issue of what's happening at home, is it? It's always an issue of the, of, of the teacher. Really? Because it's much easier to blame someone else than to have a look at yourself. Israel did that. And by the time of Jesus' birth, their number one enemy that needed a saviour was Rome. That was the problem. If the Romans weren't here, we would be okay. We do the same. We look at other things in our lives, maybe on a small level, and we say, if I had, you know, that perfect life partner, that husband or wife, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, if I got that mark in my TER or I got into that uni course or I got those Ds or HDs or that dream job or if I lived in this house, we have these little dreams and they become saviours for us. What we actually find out is that when we start achieving those, if we do, they never really deliver us, do they? There's always something else. They never truly satisfy. Maybe, maybe you move beyond the personal and you go, actually, if our government got its act together and, you know, our state government, our national government, if we had the political solutions, we had the economic solutions, maybe if we had the social reforms, then everything would be okay. Brothers and sisters, these things are just symptoms of a much deeper issue. What Matthew 1 tells us and what our experience will tell us is that even though we see the pox on the surface, the problem is much more profound and the answer is much deeper than just putting a Band-Aid. Band-Aids on chicken pox do nothing. It might stop you scratching, but nothing else. They don't solve the issue. Because the issue is deeper inside. And the issue for us, for Israel, is an issue of the heart. An issue of a life out of step, out of sync with God. The issue of a humanity in rebellion from its creator. And no matter what you do externally, it cannot change. When you think about the Gospels, who were the ultimate religious fanatics? It was the Pharisees, wasn't it? These guys were hardcore. If anyone was going to be able to pull themselves up and get themselves right, these guys had all the rules. They are a case study of why religion and morality can never bridge the gap between us and God. Do you remember? 
Mark's gospel, it's familiar to my head here at the moment, it just takes them just a few chapters before they're conspiring to murder these wonderful, righteous people conspiring to murder Jesus. Shows you that religion, that reform, that moral improvement, that external solutions cannot actually change the heart. We need something. We need someone who can actually do this, not just the outside, but change the inside. And so then the outside. Israel knew that there was only one saviour with a proven track record. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He's done it before. That's what Psalm 130 is saying. He's done it before and Israel knew that. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. When you're looking for a saviour, God himself is the only one. And so we now get into the story that is very, very familiar. Now, two Gospels have the account of Jesus' birth. One is Matthew, the other one is Luke. And if you read them side by side, they're quite different. Because it's like Luke has sat down with Mary and said, tell me about how it worked. But Matthew, Matthew hasn't spoken to Mary, he's actually spoken to Joseph. And we have the other side of the story here. We have a familiar story, but sold probably in the least familiar way. Mary's story, I think we know probably better. And in Matthew verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. This is how the birth of the, Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, familiar story. Let me just unpack some of the details. few things might strike you as a little bit odd there. They were pledged to be married, but if you notice down in verse 19, Joseph, her husband. Are they married? Are they not married? Well, in those days... Jewish custom was much more binding in engagement. So when you were engaged, that was like saying the wedding vows. At that point, you know, the minister pronounces you husband and wife, but the gap between the wedding vows and the wedding night might have been over a year. Okay? So get that in your head, those of you who are engaged. Waiting a year after pledging yourself, we are married to actually being able to bring that marriage to fulfilment. The bride would live with her family. The groom would live independently. Uh, no sex, no nothing. Uh, but they were still husband and wife. And so Joseph finds himself in this situation, bound to this woman who is pregnant. And the only thing he knows is that he's actually not the father. And so put hypothesis number one into action. What is the first thing that goes through Joseph's mind? He doesn't sit down and go, ah, Holy Spirit. No, he thinks about the guy who lives around the corner or the guy down the end of the street. He's baffled because this is Mary. He knows Mary. She seemed the real thing, but she is pregnant and he is not the father. And so in those days, 
Uh, Deuteronomy did prescribe stoning for adultery, but at Jesus' time, divorce was normal. And to divorce her and to do it quietly, all he needed to do was actually fill out a certificate of divorce and go with two witnesses to her and present that. Okay, He could have done the public tribunal thing. He could have shamed her publicly. But Joseph is a model of compassion. This woman has done the wrong thing by him, but he is not going to take revenge. But the righteous man wants a righteous wife. But the Lord has other plans for Joseph and Mary. Verse 20. After he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. That's step number two, isn't it? So he takes her into his home as wife. And Joseph does this. We read in the next couple of verses, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But Matthew's underlining, Joseph is not the father. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. In those cultures, that culture that took sex outside of marriage very, very seriously, what Joseph is saying by marrying Mary, I am the father. And so he shares her shame. Everyone would have been talking. Everyone would have been looking down their noses at them as a couple. The fact that Joseph names him is owning Jesus as a descendant of David, as a descendant of Joseph, as part of the family. He is acknowledging that he is the father. But Matthew is crystal clear that Joseph is not the father. Now, I just want to stop for a second because we're actually talking about one of the most controversial people in Christian history. Mary is a figure that has divided Christianity down the middle. On one side, you have the Protestant churches, and on the others, you have the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church. Different views on Mary, massive. The gulf is huge. So I want to give you a little bit of a church history lesson, a very brief aside, and hopefully it's a massive encouragement to read your Bible. Okay? So... 451. Anyone around 451? A few grey hairs out there? Okay. No. But the Council of Chalcedon, okay, a whole bunch of Christian guys get together and they're trying to work out how to understand the whole Jesus is God, Jesus is man thing. And so they're all in this big argument and there's all these heresies that have been going on around and different views. Jesus God, Jesus man, is he like 50 50? How does that work? Uh, was he like born a man and then when the Holy Spirit came on him in his baptism, he became God and then maybe before his death on the cross, because God couldn't go through that, of course, the Holy Spirit kind of abandons him and so he becomes man, God, man. Like, how does it work? And the Council of Chalcedon came up with a phrase that you probably are familiar with. Fully God, fully man. It's in the creeds that we say. 
And what they did to stress Jesus, fully God, fully man, is they gave Mary a title. And that title was Mother of God. And that title was all about Jesus. It was stressing that the the child that she gave birth to was God incarnate. But very, very quickly, things went pear-shaped. It doesn't take long before people are saying, well, if Jesus was born without sin, Mary must have been without sin. And so you have the doctrine of the immaculate conception coming on. That's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Mary. And then they think, okay, well, because she's so holy, she couldn't have died. So she was bodily assumed into heaven. And then it goes on and says, no, Mary, this whole doctrine of perpetual virginity, despite the fact that Jesus has half brothers and sisters, uh, Mary is this perpetual virgin. She becomes this icon that people are praying to and they give her titles like co-redeemer. Alongside Jesus, they elevate Mary to be essential in God's plan of redemption. They give her a title, Queen of Heaven. Now Mary... Mary is a godly woman. She's a great woman. But she's a woman, as many of us here today, not me, but you, a woman. She is a godly woman, not a God woman. And if the early church had gone back and dug into scripture rather than into church tradition, the whole Mary thing wouldn't actually happen. I reckon if Mary could get hold of some of these church leaders and tell them what she really thought of them, think of the injustice. This is a godly woman who wants to honour God in everything and they've turned her into a rival to Jesus. But scripture is clear. There is one God and one mediator. One, not two, between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, the child that she gave birth to. Let's keep exploring who that child is. Verse 20 again. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay? What Matthew is saying is Mary's pregnancy is a direct result of God's involvement in human affairs. Now, God has acted in the past with cases of infertility. You have Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Hannah and Elkanah, but not like this. They were women who were barren in spite of trying. Mary was a woman who hadn't even tried. And she went on and had many other children. God acts in an amazing way to bring his Saviour to birth. The angel goes on. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means literally the Lord saves. One of those names where what the name means and what the person does come together. Jesus is presented here by the angel as the one who will save his people from their sins. 
looking for a saviour, Jesus' resume is before you. He is the one not who will release the political oppression of Rome, not who will solve the social problems that beset the Jewish people at the time, not who will bring economic transformation, but he will deal with the core problem of the estrangement of God from humanity. He will make it possible that his father will be called our father. He was born for this task and overhanging even the birth as he saves his people from their sins is his death on a cross. But Matthew's not done exploding the boundaries. He's not done pushing the edges of Jesus. Jesus, the one conceived through the action of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the one who would bring salvation, is actually in fulfilment of what the prophet had said. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, this is in fulfilment of a prophecy given by Isaiah seven centuries BC. If you've read Isaiah chapter 7, you'll see that it has absolutely nothing to do with the first century Palestine that we read of in Matthew chapter 1. What's happening in the 7th century BC situation is you have a King Ahaz. King Ahaz of Judah is under the pump because he's got two neighbours to the north who aren't being very nice to him. Israel and Damascus. They've decided that Ahaz is a bit of a pain in the neck and they want to get rid of him. They want to actually put their own king on the throne in Jerusalem so they can kind of run their kingdoms and his kingdom too. And Ahaz is a bit upset about this. He's a bit freaked out. They're both bigger than him. What future does he have? And so Ahaz thinks, I've got to find a saviour. And what he does is he sends gifts to the king of Assyria and says, these two nasty people are picking on me. Will you come and pick on them so they'll leave me alone? He finds a bigger bully to deal with the two bullies who are bullying him. Needless to say, God is not massively impressed with this. And Isaiah comes and delivers Ahaz a message of both judgment and salvation. And that judgment, that message is that salvation is coming. And the sign that is coming is that the young woman, the virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. A woman of that time, a baby born who would be a sign to Ahaz that God was still at work in Jerusalem. And as Matthew has looked back and studied scripture and reflected on how God's work, he said, in essence, he's done it again. But it's gone up a notch. There's no evidence that in Isaiah chapter 7 that the woman was a virgin. We translate it that way because it's nice to match it up with Matthew chapter 1. But the woman, it's a young woman of marriageable age. That's what we're talking about. But in Matthew, it is dead clear that she is still a virgin. And so the woman gives birth to a son. And that son is not just a sign as it was with Ahaz, that God was with them and God would bring both salvation and judgment. 
that child that was born to Mary the Virgin is actually God with us and will bring salvation and judgment. And we'll see again and again how Matthew uses prophecies that sometimes you kind of go, how does that work? And you'll see that what it is, is a pattern that God has established that he then repeats and brings greater depth and greater fulfillment to. This child, this child is God with us. So how do we understand him? How do we live in light of God with us? Is God still with us? Was it only for them there? Do you remember the last words Jesus said to his church in Matthew 28? Sends them on a mission. And then do you remember what he says? Verse 20. I am with you always to the very end of the age. The child born in the shed, Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ, was God with them and he is God with us. His presence comes to us through the gift of the Spirit. It gives us courage and confidence because he sends us on a mission Not to go out independently of him, but it is his mission that we go with his authority in his name, with his power. That is the God with us. This is the God with us who says, I will never leave nor forsake you. In John's gospel, he says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you abandoned. And whatever situation we find ourselves, God is not abandoning us. Jesus is God's promise that he is with us and he will never leave nor forsake us. But God with us shouldn't only strengthen and give us courage, shouldn't only comfort us, But it should amaze us that God would enter into this world. This world that is hell-bent on defying him. This world that is so scarred with the effects of our sin. That would share our humanity with its joys and its pains. That this man would be obedient to death on a cross. This God with us would be God for us. The saviour that we so desperately needed. The salvation that we could never achieve ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, let us celebrate. Celebrate with joy, with wonder, the fact that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. It's so easy, Father, to be so familiar with the story of Christmas.
so easy to be just complacent, recognising familiar stories, familiar characters, but losing, losing the wonder and the joy of the birth of our Saviour. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that he would be igniting the fire of joy, that we might be once again amazed that you would send your son, you would give him for us so that we could come to you, finding salvation and hope where left to ourselves there was none. We pray this Christmas especially, but from now onwards, we would never see Jesus just as a name, just as a figure in a book, but that we would know that he is with us by your spirit, that he is Emmanuel, and in his name we pray. Amen.